In the first century, a young Roman poet and philosopher wrote an epic poem entitled On the Nature of Things. It was a beautifully written poem, but full of ideas many thought to be so dangerous that it was banned by the Roman Church and, in fact, had been lost to history for more than a thousand years before its discovery in a remote monastery in the 15th century. Hello, I'm Valerie Jackson, and today I'm going between the lines of The Swerve, How the World Became Modern. The distinguished author is Shakespearean scholar and Harvard professor Stephen Greenblatt. Stephen is Kogan University Professor of Humanities at Harvard University. He's the author of 11 books and general editor of the Norton Shakespeare and the Norton Anthology of English Literature. It's indeed a pleasure to welcome you today, Stephen Greenblatt. Thank you, Valerie. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, this has been a rather interesting book for me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, The poem, On the Nature of Things, by poet and philosopher Lucretius, created quite a stir um, centuries ago, or should I say quite a swerve in the first century and centuries to follow. It was an artistic rendition of some very dangerous ideas that the universe for instance, functions without divine interference, that religion is damaging to humans, that matter is made up of very small material particles in constant motion, colliding and swerving in new directions. Stephen, tell us about this Roman poet, Lucretius, and where he got his ideas. Well, we know very little about him, Valerie. Uh, We know a lot about many of his contemporaries, He was a contemporary of Cicero, of Julius Caesar. Uh, He was a little bit older than the poet Virgil. Uh, And he was known in his own time uh, and very extravagantly praised by some of his contemporaries. But notwithstanding that, his life is a mystery. Uh, He was probably born around 99 before the Common Era. He died around 50 before the Common Era. Uh, And all we know is that he wrote this one remarkable work. Uh, we don't know much else about him. There, there are rumors about him that come much later about uh, a love filter that poisoned him, about madness and suicide. But those are stories that were circulated centuries later uh, by people who weren't sympathetic to his ideas. What we do know from the poem itself is that Lucretius was a passionate disciple of a Greek philosopher named Epicurus, who lived several centuries before him, and who was, in turn, uh, the follower of other Greek philosophers, who had begun to try to think through a theory about the nature of things that began, as you've already said, with the idea that the universe is made up out of indestructible tiny particles, uh, which the Greeks called atoms, uh, made up of atoms and emptiness and nothing else. Tell us a little bit more about Epicurus and his his philosophy, um, especially those things that Lucretius might have pulled on. The Epicureans, uh, and Epicurus was a teacher in a school, let us say he had his own uh, school that met in a garden in Athens. The Epicureans uh, tried to think through what the implications would be if their hypothesis was right, that the universe was created out of atoms and emptiness and nothing else. And what they began to think was if the universe was 
eternal, if matter had always existed, then it might not therefore be necessary for us to imagine that there was ever a moment at which someone put all of this elaborate, complex thing together uh, as if he or she were an architect of it, that it could have happened instead over millions and millions of years by the random collision of atoms. So they started with this line of thinking. And from this line of thinking, lots of disturbing and dangerous thoughts began to emerge. Dangerous if you believed in a more theological account uh, of the universe. Because basically what this was saying then was that there, there is no God. Well, uh, actually, it, it, or, curiously or enough, it? they didn't say that. You'd think they might say that. And there were people early on who said that that was what was being said here, that this was a form of atheism. But actually, Epicurus and Lucretius were not atheists, as far as we can tell. At least they did not profess to be atheists. They said that gods existed, but the gods, by definition, couldn't possibly either be fussing with the creation of the universe or worrying about how creatures behave, such as humans, that they must be tranquil and taking deep pleasure in existence because pleasure, they thought, was the highest goal of existence. And who should experience more pleasure than the gods themselves? Now, you said that this... I'm going to talk about um, the, the, the young man that discovered uh, this manuscript that reflected the poem that Lucretius wrote. Um, but before we get into that just a bit, let's talk about why you say, for instance, that the discovery uh, of this manuscript, of bringing it back into the public, as it were, uh, was a very uh, dangerous um, thing, almost a plague, if you will. Why would you call it a plague? Here's what happened, Valerie. Uh, the whole school of thinking that was represented by Epicurus uh, basically disappeared. To a large extent, that disappearance was simply the consequence of the broader disappearance of the destruction of the whole cultural tradition of the ancient world. Many, many of the plays by the great ancient playwrights, Sophocles, Aeschylus, Euripides, many of those plays are lost. Many of the works by hundreds and hundreds of figures whose names we know were lost. Virtually all of the works of Democritus, Leucippus, Epicurus were lost. So some of it was just the general loss of things after the Roman Empire collapsed. The libraries closed, right. people were hauled into uh, exile or into lives of, lives of servitude. Uh, books were ripped up and torn to shreds. So the whole culture collapsed that way. But in addition, the Epicureans, this school of philosophy, took a particularly hard hit. And the reason for that probably is that no one had much of a stake in it any longer. That is to say, the pagan priests didn't like it because it said that the pagan gods were not, in fact, very... You couldn't pray to them. They were not very important. They were not important at all in everyday life. They just must be taking pleasure in their existence. The Jews didn't like it. The Hebrew word for atheist is apikoros, Epicurean. Mm -hmm. And the Christians hated it. They didn't universally hate it, but gradually over the centuries they developed a very intense allergy to this way of thinking for the obvious reason, centered perhaps on the fact that Lucretius, following the Epicureans, said that there is no afterlife. 
the uh-huh. soul dies with the body. The soul is made up out of atoms just as the body is, and it evaporates, it vanishes when the body vanishes. There's no punishment and no reward after this life. Now, these were theories that no good Christian Jew or believing pagan uh, could entirely embrace. One of the other major um, controversies was the the um, atomism. Is that is that correctly pronounced? Atomism. The belief, yes, correctly. The yes. belief that atoms uh, comprise the universe. Why was that such? A, especially the church. Why were they so afraid of this concept? It wasn't universally feared. There was a long period of time in which this was one of many theories that were available. The problem would be uh, if you argue that the universe, all matter, consists only of atoms and that there's atoms and emptiness and nothing else. Because then you begin to wonder, well, what's the soul made of? What are angels made of? What are demons made of? What is God made of? But if you say... If you allow another term, then you can live with it, perhaps. But if you say, as the Epicureans did, that, look, everything that exists is just made up out of atoms, it becomes difficult to figure out what your religious figures can be made of. And then there was a further problem specific to the Catholic Church, which was that the uh, medieval Catholic Church, and continuing right up uh, into the Renaissance, wanted to come up with a comprehensible and comprehensive scientific explanation for the the mystery of transubstantiation. That is to say, the transformation of the bread and the wine into the body and Mm -hmm. blood of Christ. Uh, And they were committed to a physical explanation. Uh, Thomas Aquinas thought he had come up with one through the theories of Aristotle. But it was extremely difficult to do this with the belief that the bread and the wine were made up out of atoms. So why did Lucretius write on the nature of things in the first place? I think he wrote this remarkable poem in order to address the fear of death that he thought haunted almost all of mankind. He thought that he would bring good news, and the good news was uh, that We're made up out of the same things that the stars and the soil and the worms in the soil and the table that we're sitting at are made up out of. We're not made of anything different. That human beings are not the purpose of the universe, that no one is going to punish us or reward us after this life, that whatever meanings we come up with will come up with in this life and this life alone, and that the highest goal of our life is pleasure. But as you perhaps can understand, Valerie, there were people very early who said, uh, as Cicero basically said, this is good news mm-hmm. uh, because people want to believe that there is something else. Why do you think Lucretius took a poem or the format of poetry to, to try to convey this message? This is a very interesting question, Valerie, because Lucretius's master, the Uh, from whom he was a disciple, Epicurus, even said, I spit on poetry, I despise poetry. He hated the idea of conveying the philosophical truths uh, that he believed in through poetry. But Lucretius chooses to write these in a poem, and it happens that Lucretius was a fantastically gifted poet, so the poetry is immensely beautiful. 
And the question is why? And he has an answer uh, that he articulates in his work. He says that the poetry is like honey, like the honey that a physician puts around the rim of a cup in order to get the patient to swallow what the patient might otherwise find difficult to swallow. So it's less intimidating, huh? Uh, so it's You can almost sneak it in on a person. and So it's might... less bitter. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, you know, there are some um, who admired the poem just for the artistic value itself and probably didn't even care about what the logic or the, the beliefs, the philosophy behind it was. Is, would that be a fair assessment? That's absolutely true. When the poem came back, and we'll talk about the moment that it came back, when it came back in the early 15th century, it astonished people for its beauty and its reception, the startled reception that it received is perhaps most powerfully conveyed by paintings that some of your listeners can imagine, which Botticelli's great painting, The Primavera, or a painting like The Birth of Venus, uh, paintings of extraordinary beauty. But that was a response to the beauty of the poem. The ideas of the poem, the ideas that the beauty was meant to make you accept about the universe were much, much more difficult for people to accept and much more dangerous for them to embrace. So actually, Lucretius was right. I don't think Lucretius could have imagined that his poem would reappear after a thousand years. But when it did reappear, one of the keys to its survival was the fact that though its ideas were horrifying or reprehensible or simply incomprehensible, the poetry was unbelievably beautiful. Well, if you've just joined us, I'm Valerie Jackson, and I'm going between the lines of The Swerve by Professor Stephen Greenblatt. This is a uh, book that focuses on the epic poem On the Nature of Things, written by a Roman poet and philosopher, Lucretius. We mentioned that the poem had been lost for thousands or for about a thousand years when it was discovered again by... Um, a young man in a, in a remote monastery. Talk about Poggio, uh, who discovered the manuscript. Well, first of all, I'm glad you think he's young. He was, <laughs> uh, he was 37. So that's in those young days, to that me. <laughs> that's young to me too, Valerie. But it, probably in those days, 37 was, yeah. was getting on there. Right. Uh, but he had uh, already had a career that had been launched and in a serious way. Uh, he was Italian, as the name suggests. Uh, he came uh, from the territories of Florence, from a little town near the Arezzo in Tuscany. Uh, he was a poor boy. His father was arrested once for debt, uh, and he had uh, come to Florence when he was a teenager with, as he Poggio put it, five pennies in my pocket. But he had made his way. He had made his way through a, a peculiar uh, device that he had beautiful handwriting. Mm. And that handwriting brought him to the attention of the Chancellor of Florence. He trained as a notary, copying documents. The documents were quite prized because, as I say, his handwriting was so extraordinarily beautiful. And with the help of the Chancellor of Florence, he managed to land a position uh, not in Florence but in Rome uh, in the place that the young young man on the make most wanted to land a position, namely in the Vatican, in the papal court, because that was a place in which a significant amount of money could be made uh, and advancement could be achieved. So he worked for a succession of popes 
first um, as uh, one of the scripters, as they called them, calling, copying documents in the papal court. And eventually, by the time we're talking about, in the second decade of the 15th century, he was the apostolic secretary, as it's called. Uh, secretary has its root meaning of secret here. He was uh-huh. in on the secrets uh, of the, of the person at the center of this enterprise, namely the Pope. Mm-hmm. And the particular Pope that he was working for just before he found the copy of Lucretius had many, many secrets. He had a lot of secrets he didn't want to reveal to the world. So Poggio was at the center of a very complex and difficult world. Uh, without going into the details, which I uh, tease out in my book, there are a set of fantastic events as the noose tightens around this wily character mm. who came from a family of pirates, the, this pope, uh, pirates from southern Italy, and was continuing, in effect, piracy uh, in a much higher form uh, from within the walls of the Vatican. But eventually, uh, things turned against him, and he was amazingly thrown in prison by the cardinals. Uh, so in 1415-1416, this pope was uh, named, uh, as pope was John the Twenty-Third at the time, was thrown into prison and stripped, uh, eventually put on trial and stripped of his name and his position. He was returned to his birth name, Bartolomeo Cossa, and the name John the Twenty-Third was retired, as it were, in disgrace. Mm. And it really, it took, that was the early years of the 15th century, and it really took until the 20th century, until my lifetime, that a man came along uh, who decided to take that name, John the Twenty-Third, for himself as Pope. That was uh, Angelo Roncalli, uh, who became John the Twenty-Third uh, in our own lifetime. Well, um, Poggio was... <laughs> he was quite an interesting person. Um, he was out of work, <laughs> is what he was. Once his, once his boss was thrown in jail, he had nothing to do. Uh, well, so, he, he, well, wait a minute. He wrote a joke book. He must. Well, he, had, he, had, he was up to no good. <laughs> he, was he was quite a, a gossip, wasn't he? And he quite was a, a tough, jokester. <laughs> a tough, cynical man. Wrote the mo- most famous joke book of his age. Unfortunately, the conventions of radio will. Uh, forbid me from repeating many of the jokes, which are extremely off-color. Which you uh, not, I, I was surprised back in those days that they would be jokes like that. Yes, it is a little surprising, and particularly jokes that were uh, coming from the center of the Vatican. Right, right. Uh, right. Jokes about, about uh, in fact, about the very people that Poggio was working for and with. Uh, but the jokes are an expression, are a manifestation of the of the way in which people in a very difficult situation, mm-hmm. a situation of profound cynicism mm-hmm. as he indeed felt it, right. lived their lives, uh, got on with things. And the one thing that saved Poggio from succumbing to absolutely total cynicism about everything was this peculiar passion mm-hmm. that he had. And the passion was for finding the traces of antiquity, for finding ancient books. And, and this, in my view at least, is what kept him from going under, as it were, completely. Well, in your book, The Swerve, you list about 20 elements that constitute what you say is the Lucretius challenge. And we, unfortunately, we don't have time to go into most of them, but a couple of them I did want to mention. And one of them was, was, the, um, was the element that 
everything comes into being as the result of a swerve. Let's talk about the definition of what a swerve is and why you named the book that. Well, Lucretius and the Epicureans had a problem. And the problem was this, Valerie. They thought that the universe was made up out of matter, infinite numbers of these little particles. But the question is, why didn't the particles just fall in a straight line mm -hmm. down so, forever so that nothing would exist whatsoever? And what they said as their solution, and it completely, was completely speculative as all of this was for them. They weren't experimental scientists. Right. What they said was, look, look in a ray of sunlight, and you can see there are thousands of particles that are otherwise invisible mm -hmm. uh, that are in rapid mo movement. Those aren't atoms. They didn't think they were atoms. They thought atoms were much smaller than d moat, uh, little uh, dust motes. Right. But they're like what atoms are, that atoms must be in movement. And all you need is one tiny atom to swerve, some uncertainty of location of the atoms, one minimal swerve, and the atoms, instead of falling down, will begin to bang into each other. And that is what the universe is, is, a, is atoms that are constantly swerving. They can, the swerve need only be a tiny thing, but everything will follow from that swerve. And the reason that I am using the term for uh, Lucretius, the existence of the swerve is what guarantees the possibility that humans are free. Mm -hmm. Humans are not simply, everything is not simply determined by matter because you don't actually, you can't possibly control everything, all of these movements. Uh, of the atoms. But also, of course, I am alluding to to a big question of how does a, why does a culture not continue in the set of beliefs that it's always had? Why do things change? Why is it that uh, one century believes one thing and another century believes mm -hmm. another? Why don't we believe what Poggio and his contemporaries believed uh, in the 15th century? And this is a model for this strange act of taking a book off a shelf, a very simple act of Poggio's hand going to the shelf, finding this book and recirculating it, is a model for this momentous change. Some examples of a swerve. Oh, the reappearance of this poem I just mentioned uh, was a swerve. But give us what you think might be some, some swerves that we've had in this past century that changed the trajectory of our country. I mean, the first thing to say, of course, in relation to Poggio and uh, uh, the recovery of Lucretius is there, were, there was no symphony. With, it was blowing triumphant notes yes. when he pulled this book <laughs> off the shelf. Nothing, right. uh, nothing happened. Uh, for years, nothing happened. It's very slow. It's like the butterfly's wings somewhere in another continent that eventually uh, produce a hurricane, but only through mm -hmm. an incredibly complicated and indirect line of consequences. So uh, I don't want anyone to think that this text and this text alone somehow produced everything else. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But you can actually nonetheless see that there is a relation between what Poggio brought back to the world with the recovery of Lucretius and to take some examples of the kind that, about which you're asking uh, and uh, atomic physics mm -hmm. of the kind that uh, we associate with Einstein right. uh, or Darwinian natural selection theory, right. the theory uh, which is evolution. very close, mm -hmm. the theory of evolution, which mm -hmm. is very close to something that Lucretius had argued. So things that are actually quite 
critical in our world uh, turn out to be anticipated in a complicated way and turn out to be provoked in a complicated, indirect way uh, by the return of this theory. So who were some of the greats in history that reflected Lucretius' uh, influence? Maybe we could say a few other figures who uh, we might point to, and there are many, of course, including Karl Marx, who wrote his doctoral dissertation on uh, Democritus, that is, say, on atomic theory. But uh, further back in the past, uh, there are surprising figures. There's the great Catholic intellectual Thomas More, whose utopia reflects a resurgent interest in Mm -hmm. Epicureanism. The utopians believe that pleasure is the highest form uh, of life. There is the marvelous figure, my favorite writer practically from the entire Renaissance with the possible exception of Shakespeare, uh, Montaigne, the great French essayist, who loved Lucretius and used Lucretius throughout his work. What do you say? He had about a hundred quotes. He he had about a hundred quotes from Lucretius in his uh, essays. Yes. And amazingly, Valerie, Montaigne's own copy of Lucretius turned up only in the 20th century. And so we actually know uh, it's a copy covered with Montaigne's mm. comments mm. on the uh, text of Lucretius, which he loved and which he seemed to have known almost by heart. What about Thomas Jefferson? That's a bit of a surprise, isn't it, mm-hmm. uh, Valerie? Uh, Jefferson owned... Jefferson, of course, had very good Latin, so he was perfectly capable of reading the poem in its original language. And he owned at least five copies of the poem... And the interesting thing personally for Jefferson is that toward the end of his life, when actually you would think that most people would be turning toward uh, away from a philosophy of pleasure and more toward uh, piety, uh, Jefferson wrote to friends that he was, as he says, an Epicurean. He believed in this theory. But most interesting of all is the phrase that Jefferson uh, introduced uh, into our constitution and into our culture, which is that our order of things, our society, our government should be organized to facilitate what he called the pursuit of happiness. And the pursuit of happiness is a profoundly Lucretian principle. It's a principle based on these ideas. And it found its way into our constitution. It found its way into our constitution. It's a very weird idea, after all, because Earlier regimes believed that there were many things that a state should uh, pursue, glory, Mm -hmm. discipline, triumph, power, wealth, and above all, virtue, let's say. But pleasure, delight, happiness, this was not an idea that would have been embraced uh, outside of this resurgent set of ideas. Well, I've been talking with Stephen Greenblatt. His latest book is The Swerve. How the World Became Modern. Thank you so much today, Stephen, for talking with me. It's been very, very interesting. You're welcome, Valerie. Thank you for having me. Between the Lines is brought to you in part by Jack Mott Hospitality and a generous anonymous supporter. We thank you. To learn more about the books and authors featured on Between the Lines, go to our website at wabe.org slash btl and listen to an archived program. Or check out our suggested reading list for both children and adults. To subscribe to a podcast of the program, go to our website and click on Podcast. 
Be sure to join us next week for another engaging program because there's always more to learn when you go between the lines. The executive producer of this program is Lois Reitzes. Producer, Marjorie Lancer. Editor and technical producer, Mike Johns. Opening and closing music by Afro Blue. And I'm your host, Valerie Jackson. Between the Lines is a production of 90.1 WABE.